we're exploring this uh, area of love, of loving kindness. And it is an exploration for us. It's something that we look into to understand um, what is this love? What is loving kindness? I wanted to start off by um, reading what some four and four to eight year olds thought love means. Um, you know, some very nice things come over the internet every now and then. And this is one of the ones that I received. So some of you might have seen it already. It's a group of professional people posed this question to these four to eight year olds. And the question was, what does love mean? And it'll be interesting to hear, this is spontaneous, this is real, is what they said. Um, this is Billy, aged four. When someone loves you, the way they say your name is different. You know that your name is safe in their mouth. <laughs> you know their name. You know your name is safe in their mouth. Isn't that beautiful? This is a Rebecca, age eight. When my grandmother got arthritis, she couldn't bend over and paint her toenails anymore. So my grandfather does it for her all the time, even when his hands got arthritis too. That's love. Carl, age five. Love is when a girl puts on perfume and a boy puts on shaving cologne and they go out and smell each other. <laughs> Interesting where we start to get our ideas. <laughs> this is Chrissy, age six. Love is when you go out to eat and give somebody most of your french fries without making them give you any of yours, <laughs> any of theirs. Bobby, age five. Love is what's in the room with you at Christmas if you stop opening presents and listen. Matthew, age seven. When you tell someone something bad about yourself, and you're scared they won't love you anymore. But then you get surprised because not only do they still love you, they love you even more. Seven years old. Noel, age seven. Love is when you tell a guy you like his shirt, then he wears it every day. <laughs> Tommy, age six. Love is like a little old woman and a little old man who are still friends even after they've known each other for so long so well. Let's see. This is Chris, age eight. Love is when mommy sees daddy smelly and sweaty and still says he's handsomer than Robert Redford. <laughs> Mary Ann, age four. Four. Love is when your puppy licks your face even after you left him alone all day. <laughs> this is Karen, age seven. When you love somebody, your eyelashes go up and down and little stars come out of you. <laughs> Have you had that experience while you're here? <laughs> Sometimes when the metta really flows from your heart, <laughs> the eyelashes, <laughs> little stars, it's 
Beautiful. And the last one, Jessica, age eight. You really shouldn't say I love you unless you mean it. But if you mean it, you should say it a lot because people forget. So some interesting expressions of love. Love is actually not a word that is used very often in uh, the Theravadan Buddhist tradition in which we practice loving kindness, metta. Metta is uh, translated as loving kindness. It's also translated as deep friendship or deep connection with all things. But love, in the the way that we usually relate to the word or uh, feel the word, isn't talked about so much because I think that it's a little too close to attachment, which leads to suffering. And so in some ways, maybe we're even a little bit afraid of love in our tradition because of the potential for attachment. And there's a lot of confusion for us around those two things. And so we are, we are learning to express our love freely and openly and find out really what the difference is between love and attachment, as Sally was talking about last night. I wanted to give you just a very short potted history of, of, of the way that metta has come through since I've been practicing within this tradition. Because when I started practicing in the uh, late 70s uh, in this country, not in Asia, there really wasn't so much m- emphasis on metta. There was occasional metta taught in our Vipassana retreats, in our insight retreats. But not, you know, sort of like something we did, you know, with some, you know, maybe for an hour, once or twice in the retreat, if maybe a little bit more. And then after, this is the way that I view it. Other teachers may have other uh, ideas about it. But after about six years or so of my practice, it seemed like for most of us, our practice was getting a bit dry our heart was getting a little bit dry. And we, there was so much emphasis on the letting go, emphasis on seeing the emptiness of things. And some, of course, some uh, uh, emphasis on the connection and the interconnectedness of all things, but still to see the emptiness, see through, let go, let go, let go. And I know for a number of us, there was a a way that we were feeling a little dry or a little stifled, a little cool. In fact, sometimes when they talk about liberation, they talk about it as being cool, like the heat goes out, the heat, the fire goes out, there's a coolness. And yet I think sometimes we can get a little too cool in our practice. And I think that that was recognized um, even among my teachers at the time because all of a sudden we started actually doing more metta. And what we realized was that metta actually brings some juice in the heart. It brings some juice to the practice. And in some ways it actually balances the insight or the vipassana meditation, which can sometimes be a little bit dry, depending on how we're practicing it, how we're relating to it. And the metta definitely begins to awaken 
the heart again. Uh, not only the metta, but the other Brahma Viharas as well, the compassion meditations, the uh, mudita, the sympathetic joy, and the equanimity meditations. This is, really works with our heart. And so, I, I mean, for me, I'm really interested in uh, having a bit of more juicy heart. And I, I want to know what that means and how to really bring that forth more in my life. Not to get too cool or too, um, maybe too detached in my practice. So I'm wondering sometimes what brings people to metta retreats now? You know, what brings us here? I mean, I know there are lots of motivations and there are lots of reasons for coming here. But for myself, for a long time doing metta, and I wonder if it isn't true for others as well, that sometimes we can come to a metta retreat because we think and believe that something is lacking with, within us. We think something is lacking in us. And so we want to come here to become better in some way, to improve ourselves, to maybe to be more loving, be more connected, be more open in some way. I wonder if it's actually true for you, if you reflect on this for a moment, is there some way that you think, really, really believe that you need to be better than you are? You know? That, that the way that you are within yourself really is not good enough. It really isn't okay. When I, when I, just, when I did a, met, a long metta retreat about six or seven years ago uh, on the East Coast at the Insight Meditation Society, I told a few people that I was going to do metta, and they, would, you know, they said, what do, you, what do you need to do metta for? You're, you're such a heartful person. You don't need to do metta. But yet, as you know, and as I know, certainly, the inner experience is always much different than maybe how it appears on the outside. You know, maybe to some people that know me or, or, or know me well, they, they think that I'm, you know, a heartful person. But the inner experience can be very different, one of quite a lot more contraction, uh, withdrawal, cutting off, and that can feel painful, that can feel limiting. So when I would go in those, some years ago, when I went to a metta retreat, it was to uh, be more than I am, because I really did have the sense that I wasn't finished in my practice. But there's something a little bit tricky here, because spiritual traditions or spiritual practices, metta practice for sure, can set up expectations for us that we, uh, coming out of the assumption and the belief that we really aren't okay the way we are, and that we do need to improve and better ourselves. And we can really, in some ways, we can split off, we can feel this gap, and not find a way back into this moment where we really are whole and we really are complete already. And I want to just talk a little bit about this because I think that 
it needs to be said about the metta practice because it can set up such high ideals and high expectations about living with this potential to touch the boundless love in which we are. And yet our experience may not be that at all. And so there's a way we might undermine ourselves or judge ourselves or put, us, put ourselves down and make ourselves smaller, less than we really are because of the, um, the, the aspiration that is put out in the metta practice. We, set up, we can set up these ideals and these expectations, these high standards for ourselves for what is possible at the risk of rejecting ourselves now, rejecting who we are now. Sometimes this can be quite gross. We can really be in touch with the self-judgment, the self-criticism, but sometimes it can be really subtle. We really might not be so aware how this, um, this dichotomy is working within us. I felt a little of that this morning uh, when the question was asked about um, this, if we're, you know, we talk so much in Buddhism about not self or no self, and yet, so how, where does this practice come in for us if we're just focusing on ourself and working with ourself? And Sally gave a very beautiful answer, and I think a very clear answer about how this is a relative practice, and we are working with ourself, and not to forget the ultimate goal of our practice, uh, of the metta practice, which leads to an expression of boundless love, the boundless love which we are capable, which we have the capacity to express. And I could even feel in myself just that uh, little twinge of, I want the boundless love. <laughs> I don't want to be doing a relative practice. I don't want to be doing a practice that I have to work on myself. I want that boundless love now. And I could see how in my own mind, just I caught it, but I could just see that twinge of setting up the hierarchy that this somehow, the metta practice, or these practices that we have to kind of drudge through and work on ourselves, somehow they're lesser than. They're lesser than that which really is possible for us. And maybe if we were really good yogis, or we were really good at um, this practice, or if we were more evolved in our, in our lives, or you know, if we had different parents, or if the conditions in our life would have been a little more suitable, then we really would have been at the goal already. You know, but here we are, this group of people had to come together because we're you know, really trudging along here. You know, and it can, it can easily set up some kind of a way that we think of ourselves, I think of myself, you think of yourself as lesser than in some way. So sometimes I wonder if, I certainly see it myself, if we want to go too fast. You know, it's like, okay, let's, <laughs> let's do this metta practice so I can get to where I really want to be, I can get to the, the infinite, boundless, formless, divine love that's really here. Yeah. Like one person said to me once, he said, you spiritual practitioners, you want to go from the first floor to the fourth floor without visiting the second and the third floors. 
And it's not really possible. You can't do that. You can't bypass these other floors. They need to be attended to. They need to be visited. So I think this wanting to be other than where we are needs to be looked at very closely because we actually may not see that that wanting to be other than where we are or who we are can actually be a subtle form of aversion or aggression towards ourselves. A subtle kind of judgment, a subtle kind of comparing, that if it's not seen for what it is, it does create some pressure in our body, in our, on our heart, uh, in our mind. And we, m- we might feel the, um, the, some agitation from that without really understanding where it's arising from. But I think any movement away through the thought, through the belief, through the assumptions about ourselves that somehow we need to be different or something else needs to be happening, that what is happening now isn't enough or isn't okay, we feel that inner agitation. We feel some pain of that and may not understand why. For me, in my, pra- my practice was idealistic for a very long time. I know this very well. I know this, this gap that can be created very, very well. And the pain that, that, that I felt in my own practice by living out of these beliefs and these ideas without really understanding, without really having the capacity to see what I was doing to myself. I had a very strong sense of, I should be this way now. What's taking so long? (laughs) Why isn't it occurring right now for me? And I think, therefore, from the very beginning, my relationship to the meta practice was always very difficult. When, when early, in the early days, particularly when the teachers would uh, say, okay, now we'll do some guided metta practice, and they would be sitting up there, a teacher would be sitting up there guiding us in metta, and I'd be sitting there as a yogi, and I would instantly get very agitated. Oh, no, not metta. <laughs> and as the guiding went on, I would get more angry, more upset, more frustrated, because I didn't want to see how unloving I was. And I knew that doing the metta practice was going to show me that, because I might not be in a space where I'd be able to connect to uh, the love and care that I feel for myself or for another person. I might just feel kind of grumpy and, you know, not very uh, connected, and I didn't want to see that. I only wanted to see myself as already evolved. <laughs> I did want to go to the fourth floor. I didn't want to be on the first floor. And so I would, I would sit there and be really angry at the teacher for giving meta instructions. It, would get, it, was, it was his fault that he was doing meta. And of course, I mean, I probably could have got up and walked out, but that would have been more confirmation of how bad things were for me. So I would sit there and just get really aggravated. And it happened quite a lot. I mean, as I, of course, I I did stay with it. I do have belief in the practice. (laughs) 
and things did get better and things did get easier and I did wind up doing the metta practice quite a lot in my daily life um, which did come easier for me as I was practicing it through the day, as I just would walk through the day and I would start feeling some inner criticism or judgment to myself and I would just put my hand on my heart and remind myself of the deepest wish I had for myself, which was to be safe and happy and to live with ease. And as I did that year after year, something did start to shift. Although those beginning years were really, really rough for me. When I did this long um, three-month course, one of the three-month courses that I did, I I was doing six weeks of metta, an intensive metta retreat. And then after the six weeks, then I did the six weeks of vipassana. And when I was repeating the phrases, over and over and over again, wishing happiness for myself and safety and well-being and expressing that to others. What became very obvious to me again and again, again and again, was the absence of these metta feelings. I would do, I was doing, I would say the phrases and say the phrases, but what I kept seeing was the absence of those feelings. And it be, you know, it's so clear that the metta practice shows us what is not metta. You know, it's just how it works. The metta, when we're tr- when we're expressing the metta, and it's not in the f- we're not in the field, then we see what is not metta. And in fact, this is really the power and the magic of the practice. Mm-hmm. That the metta actually acts as a mirror for us to reflect back our present reality. It reflects the truth back to us right where we are. Sometimes on this retreat I would feel quite at ease and I'd feel a sense of openness and other times I would feel a lot of resistance and fear and agitation. And, and when that fear and agitation would arise, I remember saying to myself, haven't I finished that yet? Haven't I finished? I thought I was done with this kind of fear. I thought I was done with this kind of agitation. And I would just feel indignant, you know, since kind of a, a, a righteous indignation, like this shouldn't be here. Why is this coming up now? And I would actually also drop into disgust, really feeling disgust for myself, and I would feel tight and rigid in my body in reaction to seeing myself that way. It was very painful. But because I had enough resources to work with my, my practice in that time, I didn't reject it. I didn't push that out. And since I was practicing metta, I asked myself the question, okay, here it is. You know, here is the fear, here's the agitation, here's the disgust, here's the indignation. So how do I hold this? How do I hold this truth? This is the truth. I mean, this is, it's not here by accident, you know, it's arising. So it's the truth about who I am right now. So how do I hold this truth about myself? 
Do I hold it with shame and judgment? Or do I hold myself with an open heart and an open mind? And that question just kept cycling around. Am I going to hold myself with shame and judgment? Or am I going to hold myself with, with love and an open heart? And if I truly cared, if I really cared, like I said I cared, if I truly cared about my own happiness, then I was called to, to respond in this very moment. In this very moment, not like next week or next month, but right now, can I bring metta? Can I bring a loving response right now to what's occurring within my mind and within my body? No postponing. And I really got that there's no postponing. There's no waiting in this practice. It's not until I get my concentration good or until I'm not sleepy or until I, um, this, this agitation and anger goes away. I know some things happened last week and I'm really in a bad state. And I know that if uh, in a couple of days that agitation from that event will probably pass away, then I can really start doing my metta practice. You know, there's no postponing in this practice. There's no postponing in any spiritual practice. The time is right now. And right now the question is about love. How can I love? How can I love myself? How can I love others right now without waiting? Can I love even the most difficult aspects of myself right now? And I would keep seeing how easy it was to use these difficult mind states and difficult thoughts and feelings as criteria to judge myself, as, as proof that I am doing really badly. You know, to have a fixed view about myself how off track I am, you know, what a, you know, uh, how, how, how much more work I have to do. I'm really much, much further back than I ever realized, you know, that I'm not where I want to be, to, to fix this view about myself. And then if I have that view, then I think, well, if I can only improve, if I can be a better person, if I can find a way to get rid of these painful thoughts and feelings, then I'll be okay. Then I'll be okay. You know, see that later, you know, if I can only figure out a way in the future. It's like it's, it's not seeing what's possible right in this moment for us. So with all of that arising, all the different, all the whole range of different mind states and feelings and emotions, this is the metta working its magic. This is the metta. The metta reflects back the reality of our moment-to-moment -moment experience so that we can see the places that we're still holding. We can know, we can take a look, we can come to understand the places that our heart is still not open, where our heart is closed, where my heart is closed. 
I want to know this. I don't want to live in self-deception any longer. I've lived a very long time in self-deception, and likely there may be, and quite possible, I'm still living in self-deception. I don't want to anymore. I want to really be done with this. I really want to understand what it means to live with an open heart, with a free mind, with a liberated life. This is important to me. So the metta acts as a powerful vehicle for me to see myself, to come to self-understanding so that I can wake up. The metta asks us to embrace all those aspects, whatever they are. This is what Rumi has to say, Rumi the great poet, about this. He says, in pain I breathe easier. The scared child is running from the house screaming. I hear the gentleness. Under nine layers of illusion, whatever the light on the face of any object, in the ground itself, I see your face. Your face, the face of God or the face of the divine, the face of love. I see your face. So this, this practice helps us to drop into truth, drop into the truth of things, so that we can know the boundlessness of our heart. That is the wish for us. So yet we have these spiritual aspirations you know, these, the phrases that we're saying, you know, they're very powerful phrases. May I be uh, safe and protected. And, and then the thought comes in the voice, I, I don't feel safe and protected at all. You know, and then we say, I, may I be safe and protected. We keep asserting that wish for ourselves. So we're, we're, we're in contact with these two aspects the aspiration, and yet our present reality all the time. We're, we're between these two. Mm-hmm. So we need to work with that. And I want to talk a little bit more about that too. But I want to say a little bit about these spiritual aspirations because they're, they're there in our practice. And how do we hold these aspirations so that they don't become expectations that then we turn against ourselves or get down on ourselves because we're not there already. I see that there's a difference between ideals and aspirations. The way that I think about it is that I think that ideals have more to do with fear. Ideals have, we project something outside of ourselves because we think that we're limited and small, and we can get frightened about that. And we get caught in those ideals and expectations. But aspirations, what I like to call what we're doing here, these aspirations, 
they arise out of wisdom. Aspirations show us the way when we feel lost, when we feel unsure of the way to go. And aspirations, the way I see aspirations, I see them as an expression of our own wisdom heart. We can recognize the aspirations as something that we want for ourselves because something's ringing, something's singing, something's resonating with our own heart that we know that's true. They're reflections of who we already are. I see them as if we're uh, looking in the mirror and you see yourself as you already are. This is again the reflection back to who you already are, a glimpse of your own true heart. It's like a, a crack, kind of a breakthrough of something that is in your heart already. I want to read the Metta Sutta, which is the um, words of the Buddha on loving kindness, which is where this practice arises from. And you'll hear it. You'll hear this practice in these words of the Buddha. This is the translation from the Pali, the language of the, where these teachings came from. This is what should be done by those who are skilled in goodness and who know the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud and demanding in nature, let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. Wishing that all beings live in gladness and in safety, may all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong or omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upward to the skies and downward to the depths, outward and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will. Whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should su sustain this recollection this is, the, this is said to be the sublime abiding. That's where this practice arises from. And you can feel the inspiration in it as it's read, the, the potential here that's being offered to us. Even as a mother protects her, her life, her child, her only child, 
And for those of you who have, who are mothers, or who are, who have children, and for women and for men, we can, we can feel into that, what that means. Even as a mother protects with her life, her child, her only child. So with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings. For a long time in my practice, again, I wasn't able to even read things like that because it would reflect back to me my limitation, you know, my smallness, such a sense of smallness, like, I'm so far from that. And it was hard for me to see that. Now, I'm not saying that all people have, are, in the are in the same place, but I'm expressing what was really true for me. So we're put, we are given these aspirations, these visions for what are possible. Sometimes we feel deeply, we feel deeply connected to that within our own heart. And I'm sure you've had that experience since you've been here. Sometimes doing the practice and your heart just opens wide and, and your whole body starts to tingle and you, and you feel that deep connection. And you know that happiness that lies within your own heart and that you can express out and generate out to others. Sometimes it's like this. But other times it's, we feel disconnected. We may feel hostile. I don't know, I wonder if anyone else feels hostile in this practice. Maybe I'm the only one who's ever felt hostility. I don't know. <laughs> hostility or anger may arise. And we then, we really are in touch with that limitation. And it can feel like a huge gap between where we are and what's possible, between our present truth and our deepest wish and aspiration that we hold for ourselves and for all beings. And yet there is a way to bridge this gap. And this is what I'm really hoping people have a sense of while they're here, as they hear these teachings. The way that we bridge that gap is to hold the present sense of limitation and our wish for what's possible together in love, together with love. To let ourselves feel the limitation, to feel the truth of that limitation, to really connect with ourselves in that limitation, to really allow the expression of our truest humanity. That's an expression of love. That allowing in itself, the allowing ourselves to be touched by it, the connection, the contact with those feelings and thoughts within ourselves, the ones that all the ones Sally talked about last night. When we deeply connect with those, that is the expression of love. This forms the bridge between those two, the, the, the present reality and the aspiration. 
And when we do it, it does reinforce and strengthen our capacity for love. (coughs) This is the great challenge in our practice. Asking the question, can I bring a kind and caring attitude to all that I see in myself? To all that I see in myself. This is a, maybe this was a haiku or a very short poem from a great Japanese woman poet in the 10th century. Her name was Izumi uh, Shikibu. I think this is one of her enlightenment poems. This is how it's translated from Japanese. Watching the moon at dawn solitary mid-sky, I knew myself completely, no part left out. I knew myself completely, no part left out. This is our practice. And it's not where I need to be right now. It's not where you need to be right now. But it really arises, our practice, a good practice arises when I can recognize that I'm already the best I can be. As Sylvia offered to us on the very first night, I am better today than I've ever been. I'm the best today that I can be. And when I really feel into that, I really feel into that and use that as a reflection and and a reflection of wisdom and insight, not just something to kind of smooth over, you know, smooth ourselves over so we feel a little bit better, but for deep wisdom and insight into the truth of things, that I am right now the best I can be. Then that really brings about a deep sense of peace in my heart, in myself, from insight, from wisdom. And then I can potentially generate that insight and wisdom out to others, and I see that they too are the best that they can be right now. I love that practice. That practice really makes my heart warm. Because I can look at other people now and see that they, you are, they are the very best they can be, that you can be right now. It's a beautiful meeting point. I had some more things that I was going to say, but I'm actually feeling like I want to kind of end right now. And I want to end with a poem. Actually, it is scheduled for another 15 minutes, but what should I do? <laughs> um, maybe I'll go with that feeling, whatever that feeling's about. And um, I want to just end with this poem, which is one of my favorite poems from Derek Walcott, which is called Love After Love. And it's really a poem that points us back right where we are 
and where the where our practice where the metta can then radiate outward to touch all other beings so that we know deeply that this is not a practice just for ourselves. It's, this is never a practice just for ourselves. It can't possibly be. Because as we change, as we work, as we transform our inner environment of our heart, it touches all beings everywhere. The ripples go out like the ripples on a pond to the outer shore, the outer shore of this entire planet in which we live. So this is love after love. The time will come when, with elation, you will greet yourself arriving at your own door, in your own mirror, and each will smile at the other's welcome and say, sit here, eat. You will love again the stranger who was yourself. Give wine, give bread, give back your heart to itself, to the stranger who has loved you all your life, whom you have ignored for another, who knows you by heart. Take down the love letters from the bookshelf, the photographs, the desperate notes. Peel your own image from the mirror. Sit, feast on your life. Feast on your life really what we're doing here. <laughs> it's a feast. It's a celebration of our own life. And as we celebrate our own life, we celebrate all of humanity together. So let's sit just quietly for a minute or two. You will love again the stra- you will love again the stranger who was yourself. Give wine, give bread, give back your heart to itself, to the stranger who has loved you all your life, whom you have ignored for another, who knows you by heart. Thank you.